magnifique. Great to be with you. My name is Pastor uh, Michael. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, the Church of Rocky Peak. If it's your very first time, I want to welcome you. We're going to go into our time of teaching in just a minute. But again, just want to highlight those 24 hours of prayer and fasting, you know, and then followed by the encounter. I shared with you last week that this was one thing, one of those things that's come up really out of the blue uh, from this kind of listen and follow mindset that we have that two weeks ago, we didn't know this was going to happen, but um, it's sort of a series of events. I think God's made it very clear um, that we're kind of in a season of maybe heightened spiritual warfare as a church, and we just really thought God was calling very specifically to do this. So I'll be sharing with you more next week as we kick off the new series. At least that's my plan right now. Uh, we'll see if that works out to share. Actually, as part of the message, a uh, little bit about the, the background, a little bit with the story, what we're going to be praying and fasting for. But uh, we are going to be starting an all-church fast on that Tuesday at 7 o'clock. And then we're going to go all the way through Encounter we, uh, we had to make the decision, do we want to, uh, to stop at 7 um, before Encounter so you'd have some energy left, uh, or would we want to go through Encounter and have the spiritual power that's invested by going through and fasting? We voted on power over eating. And so um, I want to encourage you that. I'll be talking to you more about that next week. Um, but just get, get yourselves geared up and ready. Uh, Tuesday night, 7 o'clock, we begin this fast as a church and then coming here to our campus. If you've never been to a 24-hour prayer, the way we do it is they kind of run in two-hour segments. Now, you can stay less than two hours. You can go more than two hours. But what happens is the first hour, we meet together in the summit, we'll have some worship, some prayer, some group prayer, small group prayer, you can pray by yourself. For about an hour, we'll have like three major topics we're focusing on. And then the second hour, we actually do a prayer walk on our campus. And we go to different locations to pray for certain things on our campus. And so uh, if you could come for, you know, at the beginning, that's why you can come at either hour and then stay for the other one. But just if you have never visualized, I'm not sure how that works. That's how it works, all right? So, um, but we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And so inside your program is a green and white message note sheet we use every week. But like I always say, if you're new here, you may not know that, then you'll definitely need it or you'll be left in the dust. So I'm going to take that out. And uh, if you're all ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Let's go. Let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here um, as we come into your house um, as we come underneath your leadership, as we acknowledge that you are our Lord, and we come as your people in your name by the authority of his blood under the leadership of your spirit to come underneath your rule and authority that you might speak to us as your children so we know how to grow, we know how to follow you, we know how to be transformed. And so we pray that today that, um, I pray as I teach that my words will be clear. Um, I pray that our hearts will be open and that we have ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church today. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Our story starts in the spring of the year and they are excited. For about the last year, they've been looking forward to this. Billy Graham has become a household name, not only in our nation, but in many places around the world. 
And they're so excited, he's coming back for a series of meetings in their city. In fact, their, their church has been partnering with most of the other churches um, in the community for the last year to get ready for this event, to pray together, to plan, to promote, to plan to attend, to invite their friends, family, colleagues who don't know Jesus for this amazing series of 10 nights in a row of sharing the message of Jesus. And he's excited because he and his whole family are going on this night for the first time. They're gonna end up going several nights, the 10, but this is the first, and he's never seen anything like it. Thousands and thousands of people in this large stadium. The sound of worship and singing, familiar songs, but never sung with thousands and thousands of people. The amazing testimonies and stories of famous celebrities and athletes, night after night, sharing how Jesus has changed their life. And then, of course, the teaching of Billy Graham, such an amazing teacher, a powerful a powerful speaker, able so well to take the truth of the Bible and relate it to what's happening in culture today. But of course, what's most amazing is that moment at the end of every night when he gives people the chance to come forward and to give their lives to Christ. And he stood back and watched as night after night, hundreds and thousands of people would get up out of the seat and come down those long aisles from the top tiers all the way down and onto that athletic field and fill the, fill the, the field in front of the platform as he would lead them in a prayer to ask Jesus into their life and then they would go off, off afterwards with counselors who would share with them how to follow Jesus and to start their, their life with Christ. It was so moving, he had never seen anything like this in his life. And he so much wanted to help, but he wasn't sure how. And so later on that week, as he was planning to go again, it was that morning that he had an idea. And so he began to put his plan into effect, and he began to make preparations. He got the things together that he needed. And that night, when he went to the stadium, he waited for just the right moment. Well, today, we are continuing our journey. We're actually wrapping up this short, miraculous three-week series. Uh, miraculous because it's length. Uh, that's called Metamorphosis, Growing in Generosity. And uh, if you're new here, I want to welcome you, but this, is, uh, this series is actually, like I've shared every week, it's like the second, like the second season in a popular long-running TV drama, that, and, and the longer series is called Metamorphosis, and this whole series is based on a letter from one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. His name is Paul. We call him the Apostle, Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of Jesus followers in southern Greece, major metropolitan city, one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire at the time, the city of Corinth. And so we call this letter Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. 
And today, we're actually going to wrap up this second series, and we're going to jump in in chapter 9 and verse 6 of 2 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up and turn on. But before we do, uh, we need to do just a quick review, just set it up. So we're ready for this final section. So if you've been here the last couple weeks, you may remember this, that chapter eight signals the start of a, a major new section of this letter. That, uh, that uh, in chapter eight, we learned that the Apostle Paul has just received a visit from his good friend, uh, one of his best, best friends, co-workers, a man by the name of Titus, has just returned from Corinth, probably about 300 miles away. And he, he's arrived with this great news that the church of Corinth that's actually been for the most part in rebellion against Paul, rebellion against Jesus and the leadership, that's followed this rogue leader that's been leading them astray, that they've actually turned around. They, they're coming back to Jesus. They're coming back to Paul as their apostle. They're so sorry for the way they've acted. Most, not all of them, but most of them are sorry and they want to be reconciled. And so as Paul gets that news now, he's able then to launch into this new topic. It's actually a topic that he had been talking with him about the last year or two, and it was about this major initiative for the poor or generosity initiative that he was leading. And what he was doing is he was collecting uh, large amounts of money from the Gentile churches. He'd started the last 10 years around the Roman Empire to help, uh, help str the struggling uh, Jewish Christ followers in Jerusalem who are really struggling financially, even having a hard time, in many cases, putting food on the table. And so uh, this last couple chapters in, he's been challenging them to kind of listen and follow what the Lord is doing in their life. Because before this rebellion rose up against Paul in Corinth, before that happened, Paul had shared this vision and they were all in. They were very excited. They're excited. They began giving. They promised to give more. They really felt like God was in it. But then this rebellion came up and then they, it went on the back burner. So Paul's saying, now, if you're serious about listening and following Jesus, if you want to really show that you love God and love people, it's time to get back on board with this project that God had put in your heart way back when. And so today, we're, if, you, if you compare this, uh, these two chapters of this series, if you compare it to running a race, we're coming around the final bend of this race. We're coming down the home stretch as Paul begins to his final challenge to listen and to follow what God has put in their heart to do. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section that is called Growing in Generosity, Giving and Receiving. And as you see, it starts at Chapter 9 and verse 6, it will go to the end of the chapter. So let's go ahead and jump in. So Paul says, remember this. So he's, this is his final challenge. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will what? Will reap generously. So, so Paul is using a farming analogy and he's applying it to this financial project. And what he's saying is that, hey, as you're praying over this, you're signing with you, you need to remember this principle. That as you give generously to this project, God will bless you financially for it. Now, this is interesting because this is a principle that's often been abused. And we'll talk more about that later. But it's clearly what Paul is saying, as we'll see. 
that in the same way, like if in farming, if you want a big harvest, you need to plant lots of seeds. If you only plant a few seeds, you're not going to get a big harvest. So he's using that as an analogy, and he's saying, so as you approach this offering, as you pray over this, what God wants you to do, give generously. If you sow generously, you will reap generously, and he's clearly talking about finances. So next he says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. So remember that Paul had shared this vision with them 12, 18 months before. And remember, they were excited to give and they pledged they're gonna give more. And so what Paul is saying is that, hey, you need to follow through. Like you need to give what you have decided to give. You listened, you need, you, need to follow, you need to follow through on what you've decided. And you should do it not reluctantly or under compulsion, not because anyone is twisting your arm or because of manipulation. He says, for God loves a what? A cheerful giver. I used to hate this verse. Because my father, whenever he wanted me to do something or give that I didn't want to do, he'd say, remember, God loves a cheerful giver. And it was very irritating. You probably have certain things from your parents that are like this. They used to say, I know my kids have certain things that I've always said that have irritated them. Right? Like when my kids were young, they used to say things like, I don't want to do that. And I said, you don't have to want to. You just have to do it. So they still to this day uh, will remind me of that. And, I saw, and it's still true. It's still true. It's a great maxim in life. So, uh, but he says that God loves a cheerful giver. Now, what's really interesting here is that in the Greek, the word for cheerful is hilaron. And it's where we get our word hilarious from. So he says, so God loves a cheerful giver, a hilarious giver. And he says, and so this is the message. He says, hey, as you're praying over this, you're deciding what to give. Remember what God was doing in your heart. Remember the decisions you made. Follow through with what you've done. Don't do it reluctantly. Don't do it under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver because that's who God is. And that's the vision. The vision is not that we give, but that we give with great joy. And so then he moves on, and he gives us promise. He says, you know, and God is able to bless you abundantly. Now, this is one place where the NIV takes a lot of liberty with the text, because what it actually says is that God is able to make all grace abound to you. And if you remember this, I told you the first week that the most important word in these two chapters is the word grace. And I told you that Paul uses the word in a wide variety of ways, and he's gonna use it 10 times in two chapters. This is one of those times. And what he's saying here is that as you give, as God leaves, as you give generously, God is going to bless you abundantly. He is gonna make all grace abound to you, and specifically, he's talking about financial grace. God is going to bless you financially as you listen and follow, and that's what he's going to make grace abound to you in a financial sense. And so he said, so God is able to bless you abundantly or make all grace abound so that, I love this, in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. 
So his vision is, you give generously, God will bless you for that. He'll grace you financially so that you'll always have what you need, but you'll also have more to continue to be a great conduit of his grace to others. He says, as it is written, and now he's going to quote from Psalm 112. Uh, This is a quote about the righteous man or the righteous woman. And he says, as it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor their righteousness endures forever. So one of the marks of a righteous person is they're generous with the poor. And of course, this is what he's encouraging them to do. And now he goes back to this seed analogy, this farming analogy. And he said, he who supplies seed to the sower, of course, talking about God, and bread for food, he will also supply and increase your store of seed and he'll enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. So once again, as you give generously, as you sow generously, he'll increase your harvest financially so you can continue to give generously. It's the idea. Verse 11, uh, he says, you'll be enriched in every way. And chances are, and there's a good chance that Paul is talking about more than just finances here. We've talked about this when we surrender our Finances got so many blessings coming out, so many spiritual growth. Those chances are he's talking about more than finances, but the primary thing he's talking about is finances here, as is very clear from the context. He says, You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, in other words, through us in this ministry, this initiative for the poor, your generosity will result in what? So he says that as you give generously, the end result is God is going to receive praise and thanksgiving. And the question is how? Like how will that happen? And he says, well, let me explain to you. So he says, verse 12, this service that you perform, this initiative, it's not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people. It's meeting their their financial, their very real physical needs. But it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you've proved yourself, this generous offering, you prove that you're serious about following Jesus, because of the service by which you've proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. So in other words, that these people in Jerusalem and in all the rest of the church, they're going to be praising God not only for the gift that you're giving that's meeting this need, but they're going to be praising God because of this incredible work of transformation he's done in your life that makes you a person like Jesus that would give like this and live out a life of obedience like this. And he said, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And so in their prayers for you, as these other churches, especially the Church of Jerusalem, as they pray for you, their hearts will go out to you. They'll be praying for you because they're surpassing what? They're surpassing grace God has given you. In other words, because God has worked such a powerful way in your life that like the Macedonian Christians of chapter eight, you've given so generously, they're gonna be praising God not only for the gift of food and money, but for this gift of grace that God has worked in your life to transform you in such a beautiful way to be like Jesus. And he says, so then he ends up, he says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And so it's interesting because Paul starts this, uh, this, this, uh, these, this series back in chapter eight. Remember he started with Jesus and he said, but 
that remember, remember Jesus, that he who is rich became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. He started with Jesus as the model, and he ends in chapter nine with the Father as the model. Thanks God for his indescribable gift, this gift of his son that he gave for a rule, a rebel race of enemies uh, to rescue us. So we start with Jesus as the model, we end with the Father as the model, and in between, we're challenged to grow in our generosity so we're like the Father and like the Son, all right? Now, that's the passage. Now, what I wanna do today is I wanna wrap up this series with three final principles about generosity, giving, transformation, growing in generosity. If you've been here the last two weeks, you know this, that the first two weeks, I've given you seven principles. The first week, four. Last week, three. I wanna wrap up with the final three, so I'll have 10 principles about generosity when we're finished. And so there in your note sheet is a section called Growing in Generosity, the Final Principles. So let's jump in. The first principle goes like this, that generosity is personal. In other words, when it comes to generosity, when it comes to giving financially, whether it's to a ministry like Rocky Peak, whether it's to a parachurch organization like Children's Hunger Fund or Zoe International, when it comes to giving to the poor, maybe someone in our life group, our family, uh, when it comes to giving maybe for a worldwide like tragedy that's going on. Though it doesn't matter the kind of giving, that generosity should always be intensely personal. How much you give should be a decision between you and the Lord. It should never come out of manipulation. It should never come out of guilt. It should never come out of arm twisting. This is something that uh, is between you and the Lord. Uh, Jesus talked about this in, in uh, Matthew chapter six in the Sermon on the Mount. And this passage is not in your note sheet, late ad. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, hey, don't be the, like the religious leaders. They like to stand on the street corner and make a big deal when they give money um, so they'll receive the praise of men. He said, don't be like that. Keep it between yourself and God. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't give to impress others. Give to love God, to love people. So this is all folding together. It's called coming together that giving should be intensely personal. It's between you and God. We need to take that two-step process I've talked about each of the first two weeks that was so modeled well by the uh, Macedonian Christians. Remember in chapter 8, where it says that they, when Paul came and he presented this opportunity, when he gave them the share of the vision of this project, it said they first gave themselves to the Lord. Remember that? That first of all, Lord, we belong to you. Everything we have belongs to you. We don't have much. In fact, we're extremely poor. But whatever we have, we belong to you. Now, what do you want us to do? And then they took the second step and gave generously to this project because God was in it. And he graced them supernaturally to give all they could afford and beyond what they could afford, right? So they, they took the two steps, they modeled that for us, and so whatever we give, we should always take that two steps. We go before the Lord, we give him ourselves, and then we give as he leads us, and then once we do, we need to follow through. 
Because the temptation is, is that often the Lord will speak to us about giving, about generosity. He'll put something in our heart and we will make that commitment. We'll, yes, Lord, I will. And then we get closer to the time and we start seeing the dollar signs or we might see the ramifications. I didn't know this, I didn't know that. And there's a temptation to pull back and say, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, usually we rationalize this in some beautiful way. Um, but we don't just go, yeah, I, did, I said that, and I'm not going to do that. Uh, we don't normally do that. We have a little slicker way of handling ourselves. But, but that's what happened. And that's what Paul is challenging them. And I want you to see this in chapter 9 and verse 7. He says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. What he's saying is that, hey, you need to follow through. When I shared this with you, God was all over you and you, were, you wanted to give and give generously, made other commitments. Now this rebellion thing has come up. You've kind of maybe lost the vision. It's back burner. And some of you have lost the vision. You need to remember what God was doing. You need to remember what God put in your heart and you need to follow through. Now you shouldn't do this reluctantly or on a compulsion. This is not about someone else. It's not about how much someone else is giving. It's not about how many times the offering plate comes around. It's not about how many phone calls you get or the telephone, right? This is not about that. It's about you and God. What did God show you? And what did you commit? And then you need to follow through and you need to give with great joy. That is the vision. Now, uh, it's interesting because this picture of the great joy, it, it takes me back to the story that we started the day with. And we started the day with this story of Billy Graham coming to town and how all the churches are cooperating. They've been working on it a year and they, they finally come, 10 nights of meeting, everyone's so excited. This particular family comes, never seen anything like it. It was so moving. And this is actually a story from my own life. And uh, I was very young when, this, when Billy Graham came um, and uh, in fact, I was seven years old when he came to San Diego. And my folks were followers of Jesus, and they were in a Presbyterian church at that time. And so they were one of the churches sponsoring this and making it happen. And, you know, as a seven-year-old, I don't know what to expect, right? I, I don't, I mean, you know, you've only lived seven years, right? So you, you've, like, you, not a long time to be impressed, you know, with Billy Graham. But, uh, but you know, as I... As I went with my family, it was just incredible, right? It's incredible. Like you've never seen anything like that. Thousands and thousands of people, you know, singing, um, how great thou art, you know? Um, some of you are, maybe, you know, YouTube it. Um, uh, uh, and night after night, these 10 nights, you know, and I, I don't remember a lot of details uh, about that whole event, but I, I believe we went several times, and uh, I know I was so deeply moved, so deeply moved by that many people in one place, so many uh, moved by the music, moved by the testimonies, moved by Billy's teaching, and, uh, and you know, every night they'd take an offering, and I was so moved by that, 
that I just wanted to help. And one day, I went into my room, didn't tell my parents about this. I went into my room and I got down my bank off the shelf and I took out all my money, like everything I had. Now, as I recall, it was $7. (laughs) Now, just to put this in perspective, the minimum wage was $1.25 an hour and $7 then would be $56 today. So it had been something that I'd stored up for a long time, and it was just something I I just wanted to do. I wanted to help. The most amazing thing was watching these hundreds and thousands of people, hundreds and thousands of people at the end of his message streaming down those stands to give their life to Christ. I think in my young heart, I couldn't imagine anything better than that, that I could be a part of that And so without telling my parents, something they never brought up, I I bundled together all my money and I couldn't wait till the offering came to put in everything I had for that that offering. My parents, I remember, were shocked. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) But I gave, not reluctantly, I gave not out of manipulation, I gave as a hilarious giver. Great joy. Now, the reason I tell that story is not to put me on a pedestal. Because the reality is, that was the high point of my generosity. (laughs) And it's been all downhill (laughs) ever since. But you know, it was so long ago, and as I watched that little boy in my mind's eye, it doesn't even hardly feel like me. It's almost like third person. But as I watched that little boy, it's just this picture of joyful generosity. It's a picture of what Paul's talking about. It's a picture, it reminds me of what Paul said about the Macedonian Christians in northern, remember Northern California? of a northern Greece. Remember what he said in chapter eight, the beginning as he shares their story, he said that in the midst of a severe trial, remember, which was persecution, and extreme poverty that welled up in overflowing joy and rich generosity. The Macedonians are the picture of what it looks like when God's on the move. And people give not reluctantly, not out of compulsion, but as hilarious givers. And this is the vision. This is the vision that we would be transformed to be like Jesus, that we would not just give, but we would give with great joy because that is who the Father and the Son are. Number two. The the second principle that jumps out at me from this passage is that generosity is blessed. I mean, it's clearly the the teaching of this passage that if you give, when you give, as God leads you, you will be blessed financially. Now, there's a lot of room for misunderstanding. There's a lot of room for misapplication It's often been done. 
We'll talk about that later, but for now, it's clearly the teaching of this passage. And uh, this is, of course, consistent with what you, te- what you see throughout the Bible. That God says that when we trust him with our finances, when we give as he leads, we give generously, that he will bless us financially. Um, and I want to take you on just a little tour through the Bible, and I want to give you five different examples of this in the Bible, right? So the first example, it has to do with what God says about the tithe. So remember last week, if you're here, we talked about tithing, that when God brought the nation of Israel into the promised land, he said, listen, as an act of your love, as an act of worship, as an act of gratitude and thanksgiving, and as an uh, act of trust and faith that I'll provide for your future, I want you to give me 10% off the top. Remember, a tithe in Hebrew means one-tenth. I want you to give me the, fir- the first tenth. I want you to give me the tenth of you know, your herds, your crops, your vineyards, you know, all your produce. Um, and if you do that, I will bless you. Now, it's taught many times in the Old Testament for, for Israel. This comes up many times. And of course, the promise is, if you bless me, I mean, if you, uh, if you do this, I will bless you. And if you don't, you're going to be under a curse. Because the reality is the tithe doesn't really belong to you. It belongs to me. And so, uh, so you, throughout most of their history, uh, as in most issues, they don't listen and follow. Um, but uh, when they do, he'd bless them. But most of the time, they don't. And so one of the times they don't is when they've come back from exile in Babylon. So they go to exile in Babylon. Uh, a remnant comes back to the land. It's the last prophet in the Old Testament. So we're, we're ending the, like, the Old Testament period. And God raises up this uh, prophet named Malachi. No, just kidding. Um, and, uh, Malachi. Mm. And, uh, and he addresses him. Come on back. Uh, that he, ad- he, like, he addresses them on several issues where they're living in rebellion. And God is not blessing them. But one of the issues is the issue of tithing. And this is just a great illustration of the, what the Old Testament teaches. Some of you are familiar with this passage. But in chapter 3, uh, God says to Israel, Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees. Now, that's not really an opening great line. Uh, <laughs> And you've not kept them. And he said, but I love this line, return to me and I will what? Isn't that awesome? This is God's message to us. Return to me, I'll return to you. It doesn't matter how far we've gone. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you're serious, remember, by the way, this return is the Hebrew way of saying repent. It's the Hebrew for turning, right? So return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty, Yahweh Almighty. But you ask, well, how are we to return? Like, what would that look like? And of course, he's given them many directions throughout the book, but here the topic is finances. And so he asks them a rhetorical question. It always cracks me up. The question is, will a man rob God? Now, this is sort of a ridiculous question because, you know, if you're going to rob someone, you don't want to rob someone who's got like video cameras everywhere. (laughs) And you don't want to rob someone who's got the power to catch you. Or to punish me, you like rob someone that's vulnerable. You know, rob someone that can't get you back. Rob someone that even if they know you robbed them, they can't do anything about it. Like you would have to be an idiot to rob God, right? And that's sort of the point. 
Will a man rob God? It's like, ha, you know, like who would do that? He said, yet you robbed me. And they're like, what? Like, what are you talking about? He says, well, in tithes and offerings. Remember, they belong to the Lord. And he said, um, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. So bring the whole tithe. Of course, that's the, like 10%, not two, four, six, eight. Um, uh, into the storehouse and into the temple, that there may be food in my house, right, for, to, to support the spiritual life of the nation, to help the poor, and so on. And he said, and test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, um, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing um, that you will not have room for it. And I will prevent the pests from devouring your crops, right? So not only will you take in more income, you'll have less loss. And the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit. So this is just a great example of Old Testament teaching about the tithe. It trusts me, give it to me, it belongs to me, it's how, we're gonna, it's gonna, how you're gonna honor me, it's how we're gonna fund the spiritual life of the nation, it's an act of thanksgiving, an act of gratitude, it's an act of trust, and so trust me in this and I will bless you. And so that's just a great, a great kind of a, a summary of Old Testament teaching on the type. The second example is the next verse, and this is the example of the first fruits. Of course, Israel was commanded to bring their best to the Lord. You don't wait till the end of the month to figure out how much money do I have left and then give off of that. You give off the top. You give from the first fruits, the best. And so he says, uh, uh, this is from Proverbs 3, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, father giving life wisdom to his son. And he says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your crops and then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. I'll bless you. The third example is from Proverbs. Proverbs has many verses like this, but it says, this one says, the generous will themselves be blessed for they share their food with the poor. So another example, give to the poor, you'll be blessed. A fourth example is from Jesus in Luke chapter six. Give and it will be given to you a good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And so this is a, this is a illustration from the marketplace that you would take your measuring cup and I'll give you a, a cup of oil for a cup of barley or whatever. Um, and so um, he says that when, when you, when you uh, God will pay attention to how you give and that God will give back to you. And when you give generously, he'll push it down. And that, like he'll, he'll take it, he'll push it down, he'll shake it around to make sure it's full, right? So I love, I always love like using brown sugar because brown sugar, you get to smash down to get a true calorie count. It's like, so when I use a tablespoon on my oatmeal, I joyfully jam it down because I know this belongs to me, right? So it's that idea that God says, hey, I will watch how you give. When you give generously, I will give back you the same way and I will jam it down. I'll shake it down. You get all the brown sugar that's coming to you. Um, and then he says, and then in that day, you'd pour it into your lap. So you hold out your, 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 your coat or whatever, and you'd pour that in. And so Jesus says, give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, it'll be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
Give, and it shall be given. And then, of course, the most important example for our purposes today is this example here in 2 Corinthians verse 9. And I want us to look at it again. There, chapter 9, verse 6. This is this whole passage is about this. And, uh, and frankly, this always makes me nervous to teach on this. In many ways, I am more comfortable teaching on other aspects of generosity than on this aspect because it's so often been abused, but it's clearly what Paul is saying. He says in verse six, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. He's talking about finances. This is one time when it's actually in context. Right, it's very much teaching on this principle. Now, this principle has often been abused. And I don't know if you've ever been exposed to it, but there's something called the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. And basically, uh, what they'll do is they'll take certain verses uh, and ignore other verses to paint a picture. And this happens many times in many areas of studying the Bible. But in the health, wealth, gospel, it goes like this. That God loves you. True? Yeah, true. Most of you. Uh, no. yeah. God loves you. True, right? God wants the best for you. True. God wants you rich. This is how it goes. God loves you. You're his child. He wants the best for you. And that means who would not want their child rich? Right? So, the logic goes like that, and then it'll go to verses like this to substantiate that. The problem with that is it doesn't look at all of Scripture or even the context of this passage. I want you to think about this with me. This passage about giving, chapters 8 and 9, it starts off with Jesus. In verse chapter 8, where it says that he who was rich became what? Poor. Jesus was a poor man. Was Jesus generous? Yes, but he was still poor. Uh, the example that Paul uses to say, be like them, are the Macedonian Christians in the north. Do you remember how Paul described them? Extremely poor. Why are they taking this whole offering for the poor Christ followers in Jerusalem? Why didn't you just tell them to start giving? You see? So when you look at the whole of Scripture, you have to take all of Scripture when you're interpreting the Bible. And so when we say that God will bless us financially, we are not saying that if you give generously, you will never lose your job. We are not saying you will never be unemployed. We're, never, we're not saying that your rent will never go up and you will have to move because you can't afford it. We're not saying you will never lose your house. We're not saying you can never go through hard times financially. We're not saying when a recession hits, you won't be impacted like everyone else. And when you look at the Bible, you look at the story of Job, you look at the hard times, you look at Jesus, you're like, you have to take the whole thing. But having said that, there is a strong and consistent teaching in the Bible that when we trust him 
and we give as he leads, he will bless us financially. And personally, I think it is very short-sighted and foolish not to test him in this. Because I believe he will bless us. Of course, he will bless us for this and he's promised to do so. Now, what's interesting about this, though, is what Paul says that God will bless you. He is not saying what the health wealth gospel is saying, that I will bless you so you can have your own jet. (laughs) Because often, this is how it works, right? If you give to God with a little spoon, he'll give back to you with a big spoon. And God wants you rich, and if you're not rich, it's because you're not giving. And so you need to start giving, preferably to me. (laughs) And then you can be blessed like I am, right? What Paul says is very different. He does not say, you need to give to God so that God will increase your standard of living. What he says is you need to give generously so that God will bless you so you can increase your standard of giving. And I want you to look at this. In chapter nine, and verse eight and 11, he says, God is able to bless you abundantly. Remember, that's make all grace abound. Remember, the context is financial. So that at all things, at all times, having all that you need, yes, he'll meet all your needs, but you will be able to abound in every good work. He will bless you so you can be a blessing. Verse 11, you'll be enriched in every way. Remember, context is financial, so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So the emphasis in Paul is, as you trust God, as you listen and follow, yes, he will bless, and you give generously, yes, he will bless you financially, but the reason he's doing that is so you can be, continue to grow in your giving and be a conduit of blessing to others, all right? So that's number two. Now, number three, the third principle is that generosity leads to praise. And this is how Paul ends this. He's challenged them in every way to give in the last two chapters. He's given them the Jesus model. He's told them about the Macedonians. He's challenged them to do what God put on their heart to do. He's promised them he's taking all these precautions so that this offering is handled with the utmost integrity. He's sent Titus and his two buddies to get them ready so they're not embarrassed. He has taught them so much about giving. And here in this final section, he says, listen, trust me, as you give, God will bless you for it, and he will multiply what you have so you can give more. And when he wraps it all up, he says, and here is the ultimate reason to give. The ultimate reason to give is that this will lead to praise. It will lead to thanksgiving. It will reveal to the church and to the world who Jesus is. It will reveal the heart of God. Amen. And he says, so um, if you look at this in chapter nine in verse 11, he says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion 
And through us, your generosity will result in what? In thanksgiving to God. Verse 12. This service that you perform, it's not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people. That's a beautiful thing. It's, it's meeting the needs of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, it's tying together the Jewish and Gentile church. It's a beautiful thing. He says, um, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. And he says, because of the service by which you've proved yourselves, you're serious, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. And he says, so what's gonna happen, he says, is that this is gonna bring praise to God in a couple ways. Number one, the church in Jerusalem is gonna thank God for you and thank God that they have food on the table and that God has answered their prayers and he's answered them through you. They're gonna be so thankful for what God has provided through you. He says, but you know what? They're also gonna be thankful for you. And they're gonna be thankful for this supernatural work where this anti-Semitism between Jews and Gentiles has gone on for century, that God has done such a work of grace in your heart that Gentiles would love Jews. And they're gonna say, these Gentiles we're not sure if they're true Jesus followers. We're not sure if they can really be saved. We're, they're Gentiles. But when they see this kind of love, they're gonna praise God that you are part of the body of Christ. That God is doing something amazing because nothing but the grace of God could make Gentiles who live a thousand miles away sacrifice for Jews in Jerusalem after hundreds of years of animosity where Jews wouldn't even have dinner with a Gentile, you see? And as a result of that, they're gonna praise God because your obedience is real. And the transformation in your life is real. And the work of the Holy Spirit is real. And this message of Jesus is real and it changes lives. And it's going to make them sit up and praise God for what he's done in your life. This going to be praise to God. And you know, I think this is what happens is that we love God, we love one another, and it's reflected in our finances. It's a beautiful thing that brings praise to God. I don't know if you've ever been on the other end of this where you've been going through a hard time and someone, maybe your life group takes up a collection for you to help you pay the rent or to help you with the medical bills or whatever it is, they buy you groceries, whatever, that when you see the love of God being demonstrated in tangible ways, it leads to praise to God. And you know what? This is the same in the outside world. You know, when here at Rocky Peak, we do an initiative for the poor, and we do something like maybe we're raising money for water wells in Africa. Many of you experienced this where many of your non-Christian friends, they're, they don't love Jesus, they're maybe anti, but they can get behind that. And they say, that is really cool. You know, often when we come to Jesus, we tell our non-believing friends, you need to know Jesus, and knowing Jesus is the best thing in life. It's the most important thing in life. It's changed my life to know him, to love him, to please him is the top priority. 
And when they don't see that reflected in our wallets, it's very easy to say, you say that you found God, but the reality is you bow down at the altar of materialism like everyone else in our culture. Let me know when you find something of ultimate value that actually makes a difference in your life. And when the outside world sees us loving one another, when it sees us sacrificing, when it sees us making a difference, what it says is this is real. And there in your note sheet, I put something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He told his disciples, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good what? Yeah, your good deeds. On your note sheet, your good works. They see your good works. Not that they see your good words. They see your good works. And then they glorify or praise your Father in the heavens. You see? So when we're living out the gospel, when we're living out grace, acts of generosity, whether it's funding the movement of Jesus, whether it's initiatives for the poor, whether it's loving someone in your family, whether it's, um, whether it's someone in your life group, whether it's whatever it is, when they see that happening, it proves that our obedience is real and it brings praise to our Father in the heavens. And so Paul wraps up then this whole two chapters in verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Starts with Jesus, the one who is rich, became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. He ends with the Father who gave his indescribable gift. And you know, the good news is that it would seem that the Corinthians actually listened. You know, the question is, well, what happened? Paul wrote the letter, what happened? What's really interesting is a few months after he wrote this letter, Paul traveled for his third visit to Corinth. While he was there in Corinth, he wrote his most famous letter ever to the church of Rome. And at the end of that letter, he says, you know, I'm here in Corinth. He says, I'm about to go to Jerusalem um, because the followers of Jesus in, in, in Macedonia, northern Greece, and in Achaia, southern Greece, that's where Corinth was, have been pleased to make an offering for the poor. And I want you to see this there in your note sheet. Romans 15, now I'm on my way to Jerusalem. Paul writing to the Christians in Rome, he's in Corinth, and I'm in the service of the Lord's people for Macedonia and Achaia, where Corinth is, we're pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. And so it sounds like they listen. It sounds like, in this case, at least to some degree, we don't, they followed. And that would be my prayer for us as we wrap up this series, that we as a church would model ourselves after the Macedonian Christians, We'd model ourselves after Jesus. We'd become, grow up and be like our father. That we would listen and follow. We'd learn to take those two steps. And that once we've done that without manipulation or guilt, that we would give with great joy and follow through on what we've promised to do. 
that we might grow up and be like our father in the heavens and like our big brother who's modeled the path before us. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so right now, we, I wanted to wrap up this series by spending some time uh, celebrating this indescribable gift, celebrating the one who, though he was rich, became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. And so right now, we're gonna have a time of communion. We're gonna enter into worship, we're gonna have a time of communion. If you're new here at Rocky Peak, you've never seen this done, we have tables with the elements, the bread and the wine around the room and at the top of the, uh, the, the, the auditorium, worship center. And, uh, and so during worship, uh, we're gonna stand up, you have a chance to go and receive communion. Now here's what I would encourage. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is a great time to thank God for his indescribable gift. But it's also a time to rededicate ourselves and say, Father, I want to listen and follow. I want to take the two steps in my life. I want to be open for you to use me as a conduit of your love. I want to enter into an adventure of giving and receiving. And as you ask me, I will follow. And would you do a work of grace in my life that turns me into a person like you, transforms me into a person like you. It's a great time for us to thank him for his life, death, and resurrection that makes all this possible for his incredible grace. It's a great chance for us to pray about where we are at in the area of generosity. If you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're not ready to give your life to Jesus, we're just so glad you're here and uh, during this time when everyone's getting up and it'd be a darker in here and moving around, feel free. You can either stay at your seat, move around, find a place to reflect, maybe pray. Um, but we would ask you not to receive communion because this is a sign of a covenant with Jesus. And if you haven't entered in, it's like wearing a wedding ring if you're not married. And, like you want to wait until you make that decision. If you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but you say, I want in. I want to know this Jesus. I want to be forgiven for my sins. I want the gift of his spirit. I want to be transformed from the inside out. I want that work of grace in my life. There is no better way than to participate in this and to go to the table and as you take the bread and as you take the cup, ask Jesus into your life to forgive you and transform your life. So would you stand with me as we celebrate God's indescribable gift. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your indescribable gift. There is no way that we can begin to describe it, understand it, not in a million years, not in a billion years. But Lord, at least we can acknowledge that it's amazing and pray for a greater understanding of your love that was demonstrated in this indescribable gift. Jesus, we thank you that though you were rich, you became poor, that through your poverty, we might become rich. Today, we revel in your riches, the riches of your grace, your forgiveness, your transforming power. We pray that right now, Jesus, you would pour out your spirit on this place, and as we come to say thank you, as we come to receive that you'd meet us, and you'd begin a new work of grace in our life like the Macedonians, that you would transform us from the inside out, that we would be people that give ourselves first to you and then to your will, whatever that is. 
And Father, we pray for those here that are ready to give their life to Christ. We pray as they come to receive communion, you would meet them in a powerful way as they begin their journey with you. And so we thank you for the indescribable gift. We thank you for the cross that makes this new relationship possible. We pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen.